Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Inside BS Show. Today, we've got a fantastic expert for you. If you've ever wondered how lawyers get all the information and the expertise they need to win a case, and if you are not familiar, an expert can make or break a case when it comes to a litigation matter. Our guest today is going to share all of that with you, and he's also got some inside scoop on some stuff that's in the news. So, ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Mark McFarland to the Inside BS Show. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. So, I teased it out a little bit. Tell people what you do for a living, and then I want to hit you with something that's hot in the news right now. Sure, Dave. So what I do is I am a forensic electrical and telecommunications engineer. So I work as an expert witness uh, with lawyers, with the plaintiff's lawyers and defense lawyers on uh, personal injury cases, liability cases, and criminal cases. Uh, so some types of cases I've worked on include things they range from electrocutions to uh, sex trafficking and everything in between. So I worked on different things like protection orders and looking at the authenticity of social media, uh, mining accidents where there was a communication system failure and someone got hurt, even things like distracted drivers and looking at what happened, what was going on in the cell record uh, right before the accident. And in the criminal space, I've worked on home invasions, um, a murder appeal, uh, sex trafficking, and even uh, securities fraud. So it's all over the map. All right, so uh, you you gave me a whole bunch of stuff that I want to ask questions about, but I got to start with this question mark because I was on a I was on a long flight yesterday. I live in Miami and I came back home from Western Canada. And as we're recording this, yesterday was the first day that the telecommunications networks were allowed to turn up their 5G networks. So, Mark, let me ask you right now. Give us the answer. Can 5G crash airplanes? Well, that depends. <laughs> no, no, from, from this, what, what's going on here was uh, in terms of this 5G and turning this new system on, this was a, a C-band uh, uh, supplement kind of to 5G. It's just a different frequency. And there was concern about this, this new frequency, this new channel that's being used. There's some concern that it might cause interference with altimeters and such things can happen, and these things do happen, that there's interference among different equipment. It's called electromagnetic interference. And those things do happen, and things are designed to, uh, to prevent that from happening. And in terms of what was going on here, it just seemed... I was kind of shocked that I heard, heard this news article two days... I think it was two days before they were going to switch this system on. And all of a sudden, we're hearing, oh, now the planes aren't going to be able to land. So these things don't just spring up like these are engineered. The government puts a lot of time and money and effort into, into working, working through these things. So I'm not exactly sure what caused this, but there may be potential for interference and whether that causes problems or not. I mean, that, that's still to be seen, I would say. But I would imagine at this point, this has been studied to some extent and there's just a disagreement between the FAA and then some of the cellular providers. Well, and it's been it's been a full twenty four hours. I think the I think the re resolution was they weren't going to turn them on within two miles of an airport or something like that. So, Mark, tell us, uh, just explain to folks because I'm sure you know. And we did. I didn't do like a pre interview with it, with you or anything. So, if you don't know, uh, you know, it's not your fault. There's got to be redundancy in aircraft, right? So, there's really there's like if if some if one thing doesn't work, they can use something else, right? 
Yeah, sure. There is there is a lot of different redundancies they have, and from what I read, the the issue here was during uh, low visibility landings that there would, might be issues with using more, I guess, depending more on the instrumentation to make those landings. So they can just go around or radio in and say, hey, we've got interference and go around, go to another airport, go somewhere else. It's not like the planes are going to drop out of the sky. Right. I don't think that's going to happen. No. <laughs> All right. So when you were when you were introducing yourself to us, to to the audience and to me, you you mentioned sex trafficking. So what is an engineer, particularly an electrical engineer? What does an electrical engineer have to do with a sex trafficking case? Tell us that story, Mark. Yeah, this is a. It, it, it caught me by surprise too that I can contribute and add add some knowledge in this area. And what this revolved around was location. Where was someone? Where was someone? What places did they go to? So this was looking at uh, Google location data that came from an individual. And the the uh, attorneys that had retained me had wanted to know basically a tabulation of where this person was on certain days and then uh, what places they visited. So that was my my contribution there was looking at this record. So pulling it out of Google and you get a data file, basically, and it's not always uh, straightforward what's in there. So looking at that, seeing what's in there, what all the information that comes with that and then pulling, getting the important information that I'm asked to uh, retrieve out of there. Okay. So help, help folks understand, because I've, I'm always shocked about this myself. As long as you and I are walking around with these and I'm holding up a cell phone right now, people basically can, if you're, if your phone is on people, somebody's tracking where you're going, whether it's Google, whether it's Apple, explain to folks how that works, Mark. Yeah, there's like you said, the apps that track you. There's Google, there's Google that tracks you. That you give them permission to do that. A lot of different apps people have, probably Facebook, Twitter, a lot, a lot of different apps that are going to track you. And in addition to that, to make these calls go through, make your texts go through, and for your for your uh, cell phone to work, these towers have to know where you are all the time. So the towers track you, and they keep additional records on you, on where you were, what towers you connected to what type of activity you were doing on your phone. They, they need, I mean, that, that's how the system works is they have to know what you're asking for and then deliver it. And before our listeners freak out and go, hey, wait a minute, I didn't give anybody any permission to do that. Well, yeah, you did. In order to, in order to download the app in the first place, you click a couple of boxes. You don't read what you're clicking. You're basically, you've given... Everybody who's in your phone right now, whether it's Google or Facebook or Apple, you already gave them permission to listen to what you're saying, to track where you're going. So if you're surprised by this, you're surprised because you didn't read what you were clicking off. It's a trade-off. You want to access these services. You're basically allowing yourself to be tracked. So, Mark, when you testify in a case like that, what do you testify to how the technology works and how there can't be a mistake? You t basically testify that the technology is, you know, is what the lawyers are saying it is. Yeah, I mean, you look at I look at the record and, and see what see what it contains and see what's in there. And then uh, there's different measures of certainty, too, that go into this. And in terms of GPS, you don't know exactly where someone is, but you have a good range within, I don't know, 20, 25 feet or, or more or less. So there's that information that 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 you know okay all right and 
how did you get started? Like, how does how do you become an expert witness? There's no like expert witness school you go to, right? No. Did, <laughs> did did one of your buddies who was a lawyer say, "Hey, Mark, you're an engineer. Look at this problem. Can you help me with it?" How did it start for you? For me, it started when I was very young. I was a teenager, and I have an uncle, my uh, dear uncle Lou. God rest his soul. He got me involved in the National Society of Professional Engineers. He was an expert witness himself. He, he was a, a, a physics professor and then was starting this career as an expert witness on the side. I saw what he did. It was very interesting. It's something that requires uh, a lot of education, a lot of training, and not just uh, uh, book smarts and academics, but also you have to be able to relate to people and, and have make... Uh, something that happens or some some technical information I have to convey, I need to make it meaningful so it helps them inform their decisions. And that's really my role is to give these fact finders the information they need to make their make their decisions like a judge or a jury. Uh, so then I worked as an engineer in industry and government for about uh, 20-some years and uh, accumulated a lot of education, gave a lot of talks and presentations, wrote papers, uh, did all that type of stuff, and then this uh, was something I had wanted to do that my uncle had turned me on to, so I just started connecting with lawyers and marketing my skills, learning how to market myself to, to lawyers, things I, I can do, different cases I can help them with. So the beginning was really tough. I'm still somewhat in the beginning stages, but it's just a matter of building a business and uh, just explaining yourself and getting yourself out there in front of people. So what you, we already talked about some of the we talked about the sex trafficking case that you worked on and that was kind of a one off. What's a what's a normal case? Is it a case where like you mentioned an electrocution? Tell us the story about that because you're an electrical engineer. That makes sense to me. Tell us that story. Yeah, that story was there was a gentleman uh, who was in a hotel and he was getting changed and leaned on the wall and he leaned on the circuit panel cover and he got a, a shock from that, a, a shock. And the shock itself didn't didn't cause a lot of harm to him. It was that that caused him to fall over and hit his head. And he had a lot of uh, he was really hurt from that. So I was retained by the uh, by his his lawyers to come and investigate the circuit panel in the hotel. So I went and did an investigation, looked at the panel, and just looking, is there something here that? How did this happen? How did he get this shock? How did he get these injuries? And so I looked at it and looking and looking and I saw something fishy after I'm looking at it for a while. And here's a circuit panel and there's a bunch of old dusty uh, circuit breakers, the kind you just switch on and off. A bunch of them are dusty and old like you would kind of expect to see. But then there were three, three circuit breakers in there that were brand new. And that's just kind of odd to see some, some brand new circuit breakers in this panel that was about 15 years old. And it's just not common. Like, why would you replace circuit breakers? What was going on there? What something happened here to cause this to uh, to cause to, to make to, to necessitate changing out these circuit breakers? So, based on that, that was enough uh, enough to, for them to, to that was enough information there to say, yes, yeah, something's something's wrong here. And when these newer circuit breakers were put in, they were not put into the new to the new code because the code had changed too. So there were two problems there, and then that really helped uh, help them understand that, yeah, there's a problem with this panel here. 
So the guy was, you you know, you kind of buried the lead there a little bit in the technology or in the technical aspects of it. The guy was just leaning against the, the wall. How, how does he, how did he get a shock from just leaning against the wall? It could have been, it, it wasn't just the wall. It was the panel on the wall. So where oh, you open so that, where was, you open ah, that up, he, and that I was see. right there on the wall. Ah. So he leaned on that, touched on that. And then he got this, this shock oh, that caused all the man. problems for him. So wow. it was very unfortunate. Yeah, but... Uh, Hopefully he'll be made whole again. All right. So that that case, I get how they how they found you. Tell, give us an example of a great social media case because you also mentioned social media. What is what is a, a person with a with an expertise in electrical engineering? What 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 value do you bring to a social media case? Sure. A lot of my my background too is in telecommunications engineering, and that encompasses a lot. I mean, everything that goes on on the internet, over networks, wireless. I have a lot, a lot of wireless and five G. That whole area. And so, what this case was about was a a builder who was building a actually an $8 million home here in Boulder for his client and things kind of went south and there were some texts, there were some, there were a lot of mean, nasty, inappropriate things that were sent over text, over text message and social media. And the builder said, the builder's position was, I know it was this guy who I'm building this house for because things got bad and I know it was him. It's his style. This, So then I was retained by the client who was having the house built. I was retained by him to look at this and is there a way to know this social media account or this posting on Twitter and that who that actually came from? And when you dig down and look into it, it wasn't this individual's uh, account himself. It was some other account that had some strange name and and you you really could not trace back who this came from and the position of the builder uh and his side was that well this guy was an executive at this company that sells that that wholesales these uh phone numbers that you get if you get a google voice number these different internet phone numbers they wholesale these numbers so he can buy one of those numbers himself and then disguise himself and all that and it's he might he he did work there this gentleman but it's not this is a wholesaler it's not and it's and even if he did do that how how do you tie it and say this was this person who did that there's no evidence there and and it depends on the case it depends on all the circumstances of of, of uh, each individual case i see i see so when when you look out over the uh, over the breadth of your experience and some of the things that you've worked on over the years what is the most fun for you when you're when you're you know called upon to work as an expert? What's the most fun for you? What do you enjoy the most about about digging into this stuff? Is it is it the is it the uncovering of the facts? Is it hearing other people's stories? What what gets you fired up about going to work every day? It's digging in. I'm an engineer. I like to figure things out, solve problems, answer questions. So I, that's that's what I really love about it, and I also like being able to explain these things to to the lawyers or to a judge or to a jury in a way that they can understand. That's not over their head, and and it's just something that they can understand. And I think all these things can be can be understandable. Okay, so that's a great point, and this is something that everyone who's listening or who's watching this on YouTube can use some help with, myself included. Right? Teach us. How do you take something that's really complex 
and make it simple. Because a lot of us are good at taking simple things and making them overly complex, <laughs> right? So how do you take like schematics and, you know, all kinds of things that took you, you know, 12 years of education to master, right? Or at least eight years of education to master. How do you take those those things make them easy to understand. And also, I'm sure the lawyers want you to speak in sound bites. They don't want you going on right. and on forever. So how do you do that? Yeah, it's, it comes down to analogy and metaphors and telling a story and, and explaining how things work. But most people don't understand how electricity works or radio wave propagation. But let's say, let's say looking at something coming out of a cell tower, the emissions out of a cell tower. Who understands that unless you went to college for that? But everyone understands a garden hose, and you have a garden hose, and then you put a no- and so and then you put a nozzle on the garden hose, and the nozzle is like the antenna that it kind of sprays that that radiation all throughout the neighborhood if it's coming off of a off of a cell antenna. So it's I mean there's you're not getting a big puddle, a bunch of power in one area. You're watering the whole garden. So things like that really help people understand. Okay, I, I I'm gonna ask you a question, and then I gotta um, I gotta talk about our sponsors, and then you're gonna give us the answer. What I want you to do is I want you to help us understand why it's so hard to connect a Bluetooth device to my damn iPhone or to my damn computer. But don't give us the answer just yet. I want to tell the folks that today's show is brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. That's right. Since 1983, my friends at Sandrowski Corporate Advisors have provided expert client service to clients all over the United States. Their offices are in Metro Detroit and Chicago, but they can work anywhere. And they have expertise in a whole host of things like tax planning, family office advisory, dispute advisory, business valuation, litigation support, and of course, forensic accounting. So if you have a case and you want somebody to dig into the numbers with a level of expertise that's unparalleled, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors are the people to call. I want you to reach out to them at this phone number if you're in the U.S., 866-717-1607. That's 866-717-1607. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors are the premier accounting firm if you have a litigation matter or if you're in Family Office Services, they're the people to call. You can call them at 866-717-1607, or you can reach out to me, Dave Lorenzo, and I will put you in contact with my friends over at Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. That's right, if you're looking for a way to grow your firm and you're at the end of your rope, or you just want a really solid business development plan, you can go to revenueroadmapguide.com, revenueroadmapguide.com, and for free, you can download a marketing plan that you can customize for your firm. That's right, there's no cost to you. It's my gift to you for being a listener, for being a viewer. Go to revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact info there, and you can download your free marketing plan. Okay, we're back with Mark McFarlane, and he is an expert witness. He's an electrical engineer, and he's also a telecommunications expert. He's done work in a whole host of fields with lawyers everywhere. So, Mark, why is it so darn hard to connect a Bluetooth device to a computer or to a phone? Actually, that kind of was a half joke. What is Bluetooth, and how does it work? Yeah, Bluetooth it provides a personal area network, so it's a wireless signal 
that travels about 30 feet and it's meant for just local area network connections like when you want to connect a headphone, your headphones to your computer or uh, your iPhone. And you said you're having problems connecting with your iPhone. I think the problem is you need to get a Samsung phone. And I never, <laughs> I never had a problem connecting. And a lot of times it connects even when I don't want it to. So <laughs> yeah, I think it also might be user error, Mark. So Mark, explain, explain to us the difference. I, um, I, I worked with, uh, uh, with a friend on a project that was really cool like 15 years ago. And that project was this. Um, they were, it was in the infancy of RFID and they were taking RFID chips and putting them in cattle so that they could track the cattle and determine where the cattle were. What's the difference between RFID and Bluetooth? Are they, are they the same thing or are they different? No, they're different. So RFID is just, it's like you said, a tag or a little chip that you put either on a cattle or in a, on a product in a box or a shipping container. And that's inactive. It doesn't transmit anything. Like your Bluetooth, your headphone, your Bluetooth, it, it transmits and it receives signals back and forth. The RFID, you need a scanner. And when you scan it with this scanner that emits uh, a radio frequency, it's, when it scans, it kind of echoes back. And then you read what, what it echoes back. And it echoes back a serial number or a code or something that can help you identify uh, whatever it is you're looking for. So RFID, is, it's passive. Oh, okay, great. Now, how close do you have to be? Like Bluetooth, you said, is about 30 feet, right, is the range? Right. How close do you have to be for an RFID tag to work? That would depend on the power of the scanner, so I'm not exactly sure. A lot of them are, are normally pretty close up or, or within, I don't know, 50 feet, 30, 25 feet or so. I mean, it depends on the type of uh, RFID, too, because it might be different for a small package that you carry on your person versus like a big shipping container. So it, it's yeah, no, I, I, I think I think that's right. You know, the uh, the thing with the cattle was like five or six feet above the height of the tallest, uh, you know, tallest livestock they had. But I think there was a there was a 15 foot limit as to as to how high they could go. Maybe they maybe they, you know, have strengthened the technology since then. Um, another thing that absolutely fascinates me is if you've taken a if you've taken a trip on an airline recently, they're, they're using barcoding to track the luggage now. So you can actually look on an app and see, you know, your luggage was checked in. You can see when it's loaded on the plane. And that's and that's really cool. Um, what technology excites you, Mark? What are you most excited about from a technology perspective for the future? From a technology perspective for the future, I'm really interested in, in networking, professional networking, and I've been in, uh, involved in provisors and just the networking opportunities that the technology has afforded us just even in these past few years that uh, we've, people have moved to Zoom and made, call, made meeting people across the country easy, even people across town if you're not, not able to drive. I actually had a meeting this morning in Denver at 7 a.m., but... I couldn't make it because we had about a quarter inch of ice cover and everything. So, but people in Denver were all right, but I was able to join by Zoom. So I really like the, the, the opportunity it gives to, per, to network and, and build out professionally. 
Yeah, and, you know, Mark mentioned that he and I belong to a group called Provisors, and it's a group of professionals, and there are over 7,000 members worldwide. It's a fantastic organization, and you can literally connect with people in first thing in the morning if you're, like, I live in Miami, and I'm a member of a group that, that's based in Chicago, and I go to meetings all the time with people in Boston, in California, all over the United States. So the technology, you know, we use Zoom. Other people, you know, for, for meetings use Teams. And to record this show, we're using a different type of technology. So that is is super exciting. And I think the days of, I think down the road, when, when the pandemic is finally over and settled, the days of kids missing school because they're sick are probably long gone because I think in the future, some classrooms are going to have the ability for kids to remote in, at least at the college level, you're probably going to have blended classes where you can remote in and watch the lecture by uh, Zoom or some other technological, and even participate in a discussion by some other technological venue with people in the room as well as people on Zoom. And, you know, Mark, that also leads, that's also going to lead to, I think, other areas of opportunity for you because it would be interesting to see what cases arise from technological interactions and technological um you know, maybe harassment or, you know, people uh, people recording people surreptitiously or some sort of, uh, you know, situation like that. All kinds of things are going to surface as a result of that. What, Mark, when, you, when you're looking for business, what is the best way for you to attract new clients? How do you find new clients yourself? For me, it's introductions and getting in front of people because I've learned uh, in the few years I'm doing working as an ex- as an expert witness and working to grow grow this my firm doing this. Uh, there's a lot of need for people. There's a lot of need from from lawyers for these types of cases that that involve a network or involve some type of wireless system or involve tracking or involve phone records or things like that. There's need all over the country and uh, people who have found me from, I've been found by people like in, in California. I don't know how they found me online because I, my website isn't, up, isn't optimized as well as it should be. People put in a lot of effort to find me. So, uh, so, so in terms of uh, there's a lot of need and then it's just a matter of getting out and letting people know I'm here. So if you're if you want to find Mark on the web, his website is discoveryengineering.net, discoveryengineering.net. I'm going to put that in the show notes so that you can so that you can find him. I I mean, I really got there's a lot of information on your website. It's a it's a good-looking site. It talks a lot about you. Give us the qualities someone should look for in an expert witness, Mark. I mean, it doesn't let it doesn't necessarily need to be specific to your field of expertise, but what makes a good expert witness? Yeah, well, there's base, there's some basic qualities that you need just to get your foot in the door, and that's education, a lot of education, uh, being licensed in your field, having the right credentials, so uh, and giving talks, having experience giving giving talks, writing papers, being uh, recognized as an expert in your field, and that's all the ground level. But there's much more that's needed beyond that. Because when it comes down to it, at the at the end of the day, I'm I'm really a salesman. I mean, what I I have all this education, all these ideas, all these things I can help and, and untangle, but I have to be able to explain it to people, and and they have to they they have to understand what I'm talking about. So it's kind of sales of my of my ideas and my research and, and my conclusions and opinions. And in order to do that, 
That's basic communication skills, connecting with people. Can you connect with a jury? Can Do people trust you and like you? Because if they don't, uh, they're not going to trust your research either. So it's, it's, it's a lot of communications. All right, folks, we're speaking with Mark McFarland. He's an expert witness and an engineer. He's a telecommunications expert. His website is discoveryengineering.net. His telephone number is 720-593-1640. So, Mark, tell us about being cross-examined. Were you, the first time you were cross-examined, were you, were you prepared? Was it, was it as acrimonious as we see on TV? What was it like? Yeah, it was, it was somewhat acrimonious and somewhat, uh, I, it was just strange to me and odd because one of the first things people may try to do is, is I'm, I'm, uh, tendered as an expert in telecommunications to work with. So it goes through the judge and, you know, do you have the right credentials? I speak to my credentials, why I'm here, what gives me authority to be in the courtroom here. And with the education I have, I have two master's degrees. Uh, I, I have a, an, an, I'm a licensed engineer. And then immediately after that, the opposing counsel can say, well, we really don't think he's an expert at all. So we, we don't, we don't think he should be here at all for this case. So that was step one was just getting, just getting tendered into the court as an expert. I mean, they failed, they, they failed doing that because you can't dispute degrees and, and, and a license, but it's just interesting how, uh, the steps that, that, that will, the steps that I guess come about in these types of trials. What did they, what did they ask you? that made you that that took you aback have you ever been asked a question where you were like oh man that seems really inappropriate and you know maybe maybe the the attorney for the side that brought you in objected but what what's the craziest thing somebody said or asked you as an expert witness sometimes it's just a matter of of trying to say i'm biased and uh i'm i'm looking at hard facts and i'm explaining what's going on and i don't i don't see how i can get a bias in here and even for instance, uh, cases involving GPS records, I'm just reporting what's in the record, and I'll report uncertainties also, but I'm just reporting what's there. I, I untangled it. I, I made it digestible so people can see it, look at it on a map, and, and or look at it on a table and understand where someone was. So there's not any bias in that. Yeah. And what what ends up happening if the... If, if the let me put it to you this way. Let's say you're testifying and the the opposing counsel is doing everything they can to to rattle you from an emotional perspective. What how do you keep yourself calm and you think to and how do you think to yourself, "Hey, this isn't personal. This guy's just doing his job and he's supposed to get me all upset, so I can't get upset." How do you not let yourself get sucked into that? I can't because I'm I'm just there to to bring facts along and that's that's a, people do people may try to get me tied up and and upset and I can understand why but but I'm just there to present the facts and I want to be uh I want to be influential and part of that is if people have negative things to say or want to try to rattle my cage uh go ahead but I'm just going to take the path forward of presenting these facts that I have 
And do you do you ever when you're testifying, do you ever glance over at the jury or if it's a bench trial, glance over at the judge to make sure that they're that they're they're getting it and they're not? Because if you were a teacher and you're in, you were in front of a classroom, you could look out and you could see if, if everybody was was connecting with you. But it, it's got to be kind of tough if you're an expert witness. You can't kind of look over and go, you getting all this? Like, how do you how do you gauge whether you're you're doing a good job when you're testifying or not? A lot of times, if I can explain things to the lawyer, then the jury is going to get it because I'm, I'm explaining something technical. The lawyer is, would be my first person I would speak. I would, we would discuss my opinions, and he's not a he or she's not a technical person. So if they understand it, chances are a lay person is going to understand what I have to say. And one time, in terms of uh, trying to understand that I'm conveying the information, I had a try. I had a I was tes- testified having to wear a mask. And that was like a nightmare because I had to wear a mask, so I felt like I couldn't communicate well, and I'm very expressive when I communicate. And there was a judge next to me, and I really couldn't tell if she was getting it, and there was both lawyers were wearing a mask, and that was very difficult just because it really hindered communication. Yeah, for those of you who are listening, we're speaking with Mark McFarland. He's an expert witness. He's an electrical engineer. He's also a telecommunications expert. His website is discoveryengineering.net. His phone number is 720-593-1640. If you're looking for an expert witness, you can already tell that Mark is great at explaining complex things in a very easy way. So, Mark, when you hear, I mean, there's there's been so much the last two years about of people just attacking science and making um, making things that are facts into preposterous other stuff. Like, you know, the one thing that really bothers me, and I'm, I'm no scientist, I'm a, I'm a communications guy, I'm a sales guy, I'm a marketing guy. But the thing that, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts is when I hear people talk about how, oh, the vaccine, they're gonna, they're gonna inject something into your arm that can track you. As somebody who really is a scientist, somebody who really is an engineer, does the, when you hear this garbage in the media, doesn't it make you want your, doesn't it make your head like try to explode? Like, isn't it, doesn't it drive you nuts? It, some of it does. I mean, some of it is if, if you think they're putting this vaccine in the track people, I'd say that's very unlikely. I don't even know what technology you can get into a syringe and put in someone's arm to track someone. So I'm not worried about some of that. For me, in terms of research, the, the bigger issue is there's, there is a, a crisis in research going on in, ter- in, in that most published research cannot be reproduced. And that's a, big, that's a really big problem. It, 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 it cuts at our fundamental uh, process of, of acquiring knowledge. And this is something that the National Association of Scholars came out about three years ago with a report summarizing about 20 years of research into, into research and things. And it's not just an academic issue. It's things like uh, Amgen, uh, a little while back, went to replicate about 70 of their landmark studies, and they could only replicate six of them. So this is something that impacts industry, pharmaceuticals, uh, all types of research. Why, so why, couldn't, that, they, why couldn't they reproduce it? Uh, poor experiment improper experimental designs or misreading data or mis or misreading uh tests mis- and then there's also pressure to have positive results or have oh look this this has an effect there's a lot of pressure there's a lot of group think that goes on and uh and there's not a lot of a lot of people 
aren't following science, aren't following the, the basic scientific method. So give us, give us an example, if you can think of one off the top of your head, of, of something that is in use now or maybe is, a, is you know, in, in everyday life where if they wanted to do the research today, they wouldn't be able to reproduce that research. Give us an example of that. Yes, yeah, so uh, one example that the, Nas- that the National-, National Association of Scholars spoke about was they looked at uh, some, psych- some psychology uh, test- testing that was done, and they looked at 100 tests and papers that were published after they, they had an experiment, published these papers, and they found uh, well over like 60% of them just couldn't be reproduced. It, it, didn't, it didn't fit in. It didn't make sense. The data wasn't there. And they're reaching, a lot of times people can cherry pick data. You can kind of modify your, your design as you go along. And people just change things. And it's, I guess it's part of human nature that you want to have uh, interesting results. But sometimes if you study something and you find that there's no effect, that's a good result too. So isn't that isn't that what the peer review process is for these days? That's why that's why right. you want all scientific evidence to be peer reviewed before it's released yeah. to the public. So so that you know if you discover something, a bunch of other people who have this, a similar background and experience to you will look at it, will study it, and will say yes, Mark is spot on, or here's where Mark may be off. Do some more research here, or this is complete bunk. So that's where when you hear people say this study is preprint that means that it hasn't been published and peer reviewed by other people and then when somebody says this study has been peer reviewed you can look and see who's reviewed it and you can see if there's a you know if 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 you if the study was peer reviewed by other people who work for the same company that's not really a peer right. review that's how you can determine whether there's bias or not right and even with peer review like i've i've gone through a peer review process on several publications and i i, I see how it works and even in peer review, I could ask my best peer to review it for me who might be, might, you know, look the other, I don't know, help me get it published somehow. But in, in my, the way I view it is I want someone to be critical and find any flaws or anything during the review process, not, not help me push it through. And that's exactly what the peer review process is designed to do. It's designed to shoot it full of holes. In the in the in the you know the old days, they used to call it the devil's advocate, right? And that mm-hmm. comes from those of you who are you know uh, Catholic educated like me. I have uh, twelve years of Catholic education. The devil's advocate comes from when someone was being canonized to be a saint. They would use someone to argue against that person becoming a saint. And for those of you who, you know, who are familiar, Mother Teresa was canonized and one of the steps to becoming a saint was somebody had to argue against her. And for, you know, her entire career, all that was published was good work. But there was a gentleman who was a, a journalist named Christopher Hitchens. And because he had uh. been critical of Mother Teresa for her, her entire career, the church selected him to be the devil's advocate and to argue the other side. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons, whether it's in science or the Catholic Church or whatever. It's important for, number one, for you know purposes of being thorough. Number two, for purposes of credibility, mm-hmm. right? What scientist, Mark, would want to publish something without having it peer-reviewed, without standing up to scrutiny so that they could walk around with their chest out and say, this is really true, right? Yeah. You should and you one want thing, that process. 
I found that was really shocking. Once I wanted, I just wanted to learn something really simple. If I have a, a transmitter here and then a receiver over here, I just I, I want to know what effect the trees have in the middle. What what effect the foliage have when I, the, I I transmit with a power of ten? What do I get at my receiver? Is it five or three? Or when there's these different trees in the middle. So I went through the IEEE looking up articles. I found a lot of articles on it. I picked 10 that seemed to be the best ones where they did some, some easy study where here's with the tree and without the trees. And you wait for the leaves to change or just move your, move your setup over a little bit. And just going through this simple experiment, the, the research and the publications were, were, were horrible in terms of there were things that, that, that variables they would introduce when they were talking about their conclusions and then talking about some new variables or not defining exactly what they're doing. Uh, there were just a lot of shoddy research, just a lot of poor practices, I think, that, that go into that. And so I, out of these 10 articles, uh, six of them I just didn't use at all. I mean, it, was, it, was, it informed me even more because this was my own field that I really hadn't looked, uh, I, I hadn't, you know, hadn't experienced with this yet. But in my own field, there was just uh, papers that are that are unclear, and they're they're hard even to read or understand what a person did, let alone be able to re reproduce it. What did you do in the first place? I don't understand based on your your article what you did. All right, Mark. So if if you could wave a magic wand and you could talk to anybody from a business perspective who could who could potentially bring you into a case, who's the perfect person? for us to put in front of you? Uh, litigators, either defense litigators or plaintiff uh, litigators, uh, people who have, uh, who have litigation that involves something that went over a network or something that was wireless or something that has a, a timestamp or a location stamp, records like that. Things, and, and even I've worked on things like uh, securities fraud where it was information being sent over, over a network. So, so yeah, that's that's interest. That's really an interesting subject. So there, there are in in the in securities practices. Um, many of our of our listeners or the people watching won't be familiar with this. There's there's a huge advantage to people who can trade faster, right? right. So I would I would imagine that is is that is that technology regulated? And what's the regulation involved? Like how like how do you prevent someone from you know, having a having a, a a faster network than everybody else is there regulation associated with that? I don't know that there's regulation. It's I mean, what people normally do who want the, the fastest information about the stock price and things like that is they move their company right next to the stock exchange so they don't have to wait for the information to travel across the internet and get there a few seconds later uh, in, in, <laughs> across but the But it's country. also about speed of execution of the trades, of the electronic trades, right? So if somebody has a, has a network that's faster, they can get in and they can save, you know, two or three cents on a stock purchase price of millions and millions and millions of shares is a big deal. And that can, and they can, and it's not, sometimes it's not two or three cents. Sometimes it could be two or three dollars in a, in a matter of seconds, or it mm -hmm. could be $200 in a matter of seconds. Mark, before I let you go, talk a little bit about um, electronic currency, like Bitcoin and that sort of thing. What do you, do you see, um, do you see litigation? Do you see issues related to the actual technology uh, associated with it? 
I see a lot of ish, uh, litigation that's going to arise with the IRS with Bitcoin and and currencies like that. Uh, I would imagine because it's 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 income and it's counted as income and it's counted in different ways depending upon the situation how it's used. Uh, the the technology itself, the blockchain, I think is it's phenomenal. It's incredible. It, it decentralizes uh, this whole this whole concept of currency. So I think that's really powerful. Um, and could you could you dig into something like that and talk about potential the potential for manipulation or that sort of thing? Is that in your field or is that outside yeah, of your field of expertise? Sure, a lot of like this the blockchain and these these hashes that they make where you kind of take in from let's say you take like a spreadsheet that's a ledger and has a, a, a list of transactions or things, and you 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 reduce it to some unique uh number or, or word or something like that based on what's in there if you change one thing in your in your spreadsheet that when you recompute that that uh hash they call it it's not going to match up so there can be manipulation in that normally the 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 the, the uh the hashing itself you'll find that you'll know that where you don't see a match but i don't think we know all of the trouble or all of the potential trouble that can come out of this type of thing yet because it's still new yeah you said a mouthful there that's for sure all right folks so let me let me recap for you what we've covered here today we've covered that they can't inject tracking devices into your arm when you get uh when you get a vaccine we've covered the fact that your phone is tracking you everywhere whether you whether you like it or not We've covered the fact that I shouldn't be using an iPhone. I should be using a Samsung phone. And we've covered the fact that Mark McFarlane really knows what he's talking about when it comes to technology, when it comes to communications, and when it comes to electrical engineering. So if you need help with a case and you need an expert witness, Mark McFarlane is the guy to call. You can find out more information about him at discoveryengineering.net. You can also reach out to him at this number, 720-593-1640. Mark, it's been a pleasure having you on today. It was really fun. It was really interesting. And I appreciate you breaking down all of this complex stuff for us. Thank you so much, Dave. My effort, my, my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, that'll do it for this episode of the Inside BS Show. Mark's contact information is available to you down in the show notes. You can find out all that uh, all that I described about him. You can also find his entire CV, which stands for Curriculum Vitae, which is a fancy word for a resume. It's quite impressive, so I encourage you to check it out. 